If you're new to First Baptist, let me go ahead and welcome you. We are glad that of all the places that you could have chosen to be on this Sunday morning, that you have chosen to worship here with us today. Let me go ahead and tell you that during this portion of the service each week, I don't have much good to say apart from God's Word. I don't think that you are looking for, nor do I think that you need an inspirational message. You don't need a motivational speech just to get you through the week. But instead, what we do each and every Sunday when we get to this portion of the service is we turn to God's eternal, holy, infallible, powerful Word of God. Because we know that my words have no power to change lives. But the Word of God is powerful and effective, and it can penetrate our lives, and it can change our eternities. So this year, we've been going through the book of John. We started in January, and we find ourselves this morning in John chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 7, um, where we ended last week at the end of chapter 6, there were literally thousands of false disciples who have been following Jesus, who they packed up everything and they fled. They no longer followed him. And we remember the reason that they no longer followed Jesus was because they found his message too offensive. They found that what he was saying was too difficult for them, and Jesus was not who they wanted him to be. They couldn't form Jesus into their own image, into their own Messiah, so instead of uh, of reforming their lives to follow him, they leave and they no longer follow Jesus. So from the end of chapter 6 to where we pick up this morning, beginning of chapter 7, there's about a six-month gap. Now, all that John tells us that occurs in this six-month period is that Jesus, that he remained in Galilee and that he performed miracles and that he taught while he was there. Now, if you look at the other three Gospels, we can learn that during this six-month period that he not only cast out demons, that he performed other miracles, that he taught, but also there's another great feeding that took place during this time where he fed 4,000 men. But it's interesting that when you read this section, especially when you read what happened during this six-month period, that Jesus spent a majority of his time not with the large crowd, but most of his time was actually spent with the 12 disciples. Think about it. Again, if Jesus' mission was to share his message of salvation with as many people as possible, then why is it that he only spent maybe two days with up to 20,000 people that he fed that day um, when he had the the, the feeding of 5,000 men? But then he spends a majority of his six months actually with the 12 disciples. What are we to take away from that fact? I think that what we are to understand and what we are to take away is to see that Jesus' primary focus, and in fact, it wasn't on entertaining the large crowds. His purpose in coming to earth wasn't to to entertain and to show, hey, look what I can do. It wasn't even in teaching the large crowds, but his primary focus when he was here on earth for those 33 years, especially those three years at the end of his life, his primary focus was on discipleship. Think about it. The Christian church exists today in large part due to the legacy, and not only of those 12 men, but I think you also have to throw in the Apostle Paul, because they were discipled by Jesus, and they went and discipled other men who discipled other men all throughout the centuries, and that is where we end up today. 
You see, while Jesus, he certainly performed miracles. He taught in front of large gatherings. He fellowshiped with the crowds, but his primary focus was on his disciples. In fact, there were three particular disciples that he really ministered to. Do you remember that? It was Peter, James, and John. He invested most of his time with them. Church family, understand The Lord did not commission his church to do all that we can to attract large crowds. He didn't say, I'm commissioning you as a church to do whatever it takes to go make a name for yourself, to go build your brand, to go make a name so that other people will look at you, and that is how I'm going to grow my church. No, 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 no. Jesus said that I want you to go and make what? Disciples. He didn't say my commission is for that you could go attract large crowds. He didn't say that I'm setting the way so that you can attract converts. He didn't even say that I'm going and I want you to take this message so that you can draw more church members. No, he said, I want you to go and make disciples. Church family, discipleship must play a priority for our church. See, I don't think that you can necessarily measure the health or the world might say the success of a church based on what some of the, the measuring sticks that other people use. They would look and they say, well, what are your, uh, what's your attendance look like? They would say, well, what are you, what's your offering look like? Maybe even they would say, well, how many have you baptized this year? But I think the way that you can gauge the health of any church, but particularly I'm worried about our church, is to look and see the depth of how we are going about making disciples. That's why Sunday mornings at 9.15 are so important. Because it's during that time that you come together in a small group and you dive into God's word. You're consistent. You're held accountable. You've got opportunities to share prayer requests during that time. That's also why, beginning after Labor Day, we're going to be offering three different men's discipleship groups. I think it is of utmost importance that men get serious about our walk with the Lord. If we want to change our homes, if we want to change our church, if we want to change the city with the gospel of Christ, it will begin by men taking their rightful leadership as the spiritual leader in their homes. So I would encourage you in your worship guide, there's three opportunities that are beginning after labor. There's two on Wednesdays, one Wednesday morning, one Wednesday night. There's one on Thursday mornings that men, this is open to all men, but it's a commitment that you're going to make that each and every week we're going to dive deeper into God's word. So with that, let's look at the first few verses of chapter seven from the book of John. The first five verses, it says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, they're tempting Jesus here, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. So here we are at this Feast of Booths. It's also called the Feast of Tabernacles. This was one of three Jewish festivals that they celebrated. It, was, it lasted for seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a, a special ceremony um, that, that, that signified the, the meaning of water that was given. We're going to get to that in just a minute. 
The origin of this festival was first described by Moses. And you've got to go back to the book of Leviticus in the, uh, chapter 23 where it says this. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feast of the Lord. So during this festival, they would have shelters that would pop up all over town. Now the shelters, of course, they had to be built according to a, uh, a rabbinical code that said this is the, some of the parameters that must be used. So they would see these booths that would pop up all over the place, and all of this was done to remind the Jewish people of how their ancestors, they wandered around in the desert for 40 years, and God constantly provided for them. Now, all Jewish males that lived within a certain radius, they were required by law to go to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. So, of course, his half-brothers assumed that Jesus would leave Galilee and that he would go to Judea to celebrate this festival. Now, of course, these were Jesus' half-brothers and sisters, right? His half-brothers, we know, were Mary and Joseph's sons. It included James, who wrote the book of the Bible in the New Testament, Joseph, Simon and Judas, who also um, goes by the name of Jude. Now, they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We read that in verse 5. So it's almost as if they're trying to trick Jesus here. Hey, Jesus, if you will just go on to where? To this festival. Then you'll have to show yourself, and then we'll expose you as the fraud that we think that you really are. Sadly, his own brothers would not believe that he was the Messiah until after his resurrection from the dead. Now, Jesus' response here, it's important for us to understand this passage correctly. Why? Because we're going to see here that it reveals Jesus' thoughts and his understanding of why he came. This was part of his mission. Look what he says in verse 6. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Now, if you've been with us since the beginning of this series, we've heard this before, haven't we? Do you remember in John chapter 2 when Jesus was in Cana with his mom and with some of the disciples and there was a wedding that was occurring and they were running out of wine and so Jesus' mom comes to Jesus, hey, we've got a problem. There's no more wine. And then she turns to Jesus and says, do something about this. And look how Jesus responds back then in John chapter 2. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, church family, we have the benefit of having the entire story of God's plan of redemption in his word. We can see from Genesis to Revelation how God was working all things together and that he was operating not according to man's timeline, but he was following God's divine time for when God was going to unleash him to this next phase of ministry. That would not happen now, but in fact, his divine time would occur six months from now, and that is at the Passover. But if we're honest... Sometimes we get frustrated when God doesn't act on our timeline, don't we? Sometimes we're like those brothers and we say, well, God, if you love me, then surely you would do this. And we get frustrated because he doesn't act according to our schedule. But friend, could it be that God is doing something much greater than we could even imagine? 
Could it be that the God who has created since the beginning of time, that he is doing something even that our minds, that our experience of walking with God for 20, 40, 60, 70 years, that we could not even understand at this point? Because church family, to follow Jesus, it means that we give up control of our timeline. It means that we turn over the keys, we turn over the map, we turn over our schedule to him. And notice here in this passage, Jesus doesn't say, I'm not going to the festival. I'm not going to go to Jerusalem. No, he says, I'm not going to go according to the timeline that you want me to go, brothers. I'm not going to go in the fanfare. I'm not going to go and have the crowds that are going to be drawn to me in the way that you want me to. And eventually, when he does travel to Jerusalem, it will be according to God's divine timeline, not what's most convenient for his brothers. In verse 10, moving down, we see that Jesus eventually does go to Jerusalem. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So the Jewish leaders at this point, they're beginning to say, where's Jesus? But understand, they're not looking for Jesus, and they're not trying to find where Jesus is because they they want to um, learn from him. No, they want Jesus to be there because they're seeking to what? To kill him. Look ahead, verses 11 through 13. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So here you have these opinions that varied about who Jesus was at the time. Some said, hey, Jesus is a great man. He's a good man. We need to learn from him. And yet others said, no, he's a deceiver. We don't want to be around him. And here we are 2,000 years later, and opinions still vary wildly about who Jesus is, don't they? Jesus then goes to the temple. And when he goes to the temple, he begins to teach in such a way that it astounds even the Jewish leaders there. They're astounded not only by his knowledge, but by the authority by which he teaches And look how Jesus responds to this when they question how he has this authority. Verse 16, Jesus says, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Now for the sake of time, we're going to skip ahead. And I want you to skip down to verse 28. And in this next section, we're going to see that Jesus is finally going to respond to these accusations that they've been throwing at him. They've been saying these things and finally uh, they begin to say, Oh, well, Jesus, you're paranoid. Jesus, you must have a demon inside of you. And finally, he responds to what they are saying, and that begins to set things in motion. Look at verses 28 through 29. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. Now you can see this this drama, it's beginning to escalate, and Jesus, he finally speaks out against these accusations that they're throwing against him. Now remember, all of this is occurring against the backdrop, because we've got to understand the context of the last day of this festival. So we're on the eighth day here. Let me try to paint a picture of what it looked like on this eighth day of the festival. What we see here is on the final day, there was this important water ritual. 
The water ritual, it served um, the Jewish people as a reminder of how God, during those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, he didn't just provide food for them, but in fact, he provided water for them. Remember that story? You go back to Exodus 17, and Moses is the leader of the Jewish people. And the, 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 the people come to him and they say, hey, Moses, we're thirsty. We need something to drink. And so through Moses, God provides water through what inanimate object? Do you remember? A rock. He provides water. So remember that because now go back to where the festival is. And each day of the festival, the high priest would go and he would draw water from the pool of Siloam with a golden pitcher. And he would take this water and he would go back in a procession with trumpets and cymbals and the people would follow him all the way back to the temple and then he would take this precious water and he would pour the water on top of the sacrifice. As they're pouring the water on top of the sacrifice, they would quote from Isaiah chapter 55. This is what they would quote. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Again, these words were quoted from the book of Isaiah and they always pointed forward to a time when the Messiah would come. Are you catching the drama here in this moment? Do you catch how what is happening here is just filled with with escalation here because they are saying this about the Messiah, but they're saying it in the midst of the Messiah standing there in front of them. And it's here on the eighth and final day of this ceremony. On this eighth day, it was different, by the way. No water was drawn. And the reason no water was drawn on the eighth day was this reminded them of how at the end of their journey after 40 years, that God, they no longer had to drink water from the rock, but now God was providing them rivers of water that came from the promised land when they eventually entered into Canaan. So understand all of that, that it's at this point on the eighth day that we read verse 37, the climax of this chapter. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. By the way, this wasn't just some mild-mannered, soft-spoken Jesus here. This was Jesus who John says he cried out. This is Jesus with emotion saying, I am the living water, and I am now offering myself to you. Do you see what's going on here? All throughout the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament pointed forward to a time of fulfillment. And right here in this moment, Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of all of these symbols that you have been looking forward to in your rituals. Look at the four things that we see Jesus is the fulfillment of. Just from the book of John, we see he's the fulfillment that he is the tabernacle. Remember, in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, and then later it was the temple. It was the physical place where people had to go in order to worship and to serve God. And now Jesus is saying, I am the replacement and I am the fulfillment of the tabernacle and the temple. Remember, we read about this in the first chapter of John when it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt literally means tabernacled. That the word became flesh and now we no longer go to a place. This is just a building, but this isn't where we come to worship Jesus. We come to this building, but we are the church because we are the body of Christ, which is the second thing. Jesus' body is the temple. We no longer go to meet God at the tabernacle. 
We don't have to meet God at the temple. We meet God through the person of Jesus Christ. John chapter 2, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews were confused here and they said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple, what? Of his body. Not only that, Jesus is the manna. He's the bread from heaven. We read about this um, two Sundays ago. You'll remember that after this feeding of 5,000, you would think that would be enough for the Jewish people to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but it wasn't. Then they come to them and say, hey, if you're really the Messiah, we want you to do a miracle on par with what Moses did. And Moses, six days a week for 40 years, he really wasn't him, it was God, he provided manna, bread that came from heaven. And Jesus responded in John chapter 6, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father, listen to the section, he gives you the true bread from heaven. For I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. And finally, we see that Jesus is the rock. He himself is the rock that will be struck, not by Moses. Remember, that's why Moses could not go into the the promised land. But Jesus, as the rock, he will be struck by God himself on the cross. And when he is struck, he won't just give us temporary water that will fulfill us just for a time, but he will give us living water. He will give us what we need for eternal life. Jesus is telling the people here at the festival, at this feast, you no longer have to look forward to the the fulfillment of these symbols. I am the fulfillment. Now it's important to note that Jesus doesn't just say, this water's for everyone. No, 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 he says that you must come and you first have to admit that you're thirsty. You have to admit your need. I like the way one author puts it. He says, the beginning of all true Christianity is to discover that we are guilty, empty, needy sinners. Until we know that we are lost, we are not in the way to be saved. The very first step toward heaven is to be thoroughly convinced that we deserve hell. We must start with the fact that we are guilty, that we are so undeserving of God's grace. Now, friends, I'm not sure that we can adequately understand the weight of what Jesus is saying here. Remember, they're celebrating this time where the children of Israel, they wandered around for 40 years. Where were they? In the what? In the desert. Now, people in the desert, they're not just thirsty just for a little taste of water, are they? No, if you're in the desert and you're thirsty, chances are you're dying. You are going to die if you do not take of the water. So right here in this moment, Jesus isn't saying, hey, come to me and I'll I'll take some of that discomfort away. I'll make life just a little bit easier for you. Come to me and, and I'll make life a little bit happier for you. I'll give you some of what you're looking for. No, in essence, he's saying, come to me and I'll give you not only a cup of water, but what's the next word? I will give you rivers of water. Now, a cup of water is great. Remember the, the Samaritan woman in, in the earlier part of John, he gives her a cup of water. But for someone who is in the desert, a cup of water will help you for a little bit. 
But when you're in the desert, think about the difference that a river will make for you. That's a game changer. Friends, that's what Jesus is offering, not just temporary satisfaction, but complete fulfillment. You see, sometimes the hardest thing is not satisfying our thirst. There are so many ways that we can satisfy our thirst, and we try them every single day, most of them with temporary fixes, with Band-Aids, with sugar pills, to think this will make us um, satisfied with what our needs are. But I don't think that's the hardest thing. I think the hardest thing is learning to become thirsty for God. See, everyone thirsts for something. But we don't always thirst for God. Let me ask you a question. Are you content? Truly? If you're like me, the answer is no. I'm always wanting to improve I'm always wanting to do better in something. I'm always wanting to to, to long for something, to get one more thing. And sometimes in my mind, I think if I can just master this skill, if I can just obtain this state of life, if I can just have this, then I'll finally be happy. It's not part of human nature to be content. It's not part of who we are to just be satisfied with where we are. There's always something that we're striving for, isn't there? And the problem is sometimes we can't even describe what we're longing for, but we think that that temporal thing, that that created thing, that temporal relationship, that if we could finally obtain it, that it would finally fulfill us in life. Too many times when we realize that we're thirsty, we take the wrong measures to satisfy that thirst. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah said. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, number one, the fountain of living water. And second, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Many times we forsake the things of God because our desires, maybe even our lust for the temporal things of this world, we think that they're going to finally make us happy. But church, bottom line, we so easily fall into the trap of thinking that something other than God will finally fulfill us. Something other than God will finally give us what we have been longing for. But friend, the the fundamental meaning of sin is thirsting for things other than God. We think that some other source can fulfill us or sustain us. You've heard this quote before by Blaise Pascal, who was a mathematician and an inventor. He said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God, the creator, made known through Jesus Christ. There was a recent poll that I read about this week that came from the United Kingdom. And it said that 89% of 18 to 29-year-olds in the United Kingdom, 89% find their lives meaningless and without purpose. 89%. I don't think it's a coincidence that if you look over in, in England and London and you see what's going on over there, you will see that Christianity is rapidly on the decline. I think the two go together. 
Because the more godless our world, the more godless our nation becomes when we continue to search for things other than Christ to fulfill this God-shaped vacuum in our hearts, the more meaningless our life will be. And let me end with this this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you would admit in all honesty, Blake, I'm just not thirsting for God. I want to. I desire to thirst for God, but there are so many things, there's so many distractions, there are so many other temporary things that I'm longing for, and I'm just not focusing on God. I'm not thirsting for Him the way that I want to. Well, let me encourage you for a minute. Let me suggest that maybe that desire, maybe the fact that you want to thirst for God, maybe that is thirsting for God. Maybe what we should do is is focus on that desire. Don't, Don't let it die, but we would feed it. We would focus on it. In fact, if you go to the very last chapter of the Bible, there's an invitation about the need for us to come and about the desire for this living water. Listen to what it says, Revelation 22. The spirit and the bride say, come, let the one who's here says come and let the one who is thirsty come let the one who desires take the water of life without price the good news is you don't need any money it doesn't matter what your past is it doesn't matter what your last name is doesn't matter what your skin color is you only need a genuine desire to come and to receive the gift of living water that is eternal life but there's one more thing that I've got to get to before we leave it's the last verse there Verse 38, that Jesus says, he says, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The promise that Jesus makes here is not that that just we will be satisfied, but that we will be satisfying to others. Here's Here's the great news about coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And that is that not only will our cup be full, but we will also overflow into the lives of others. Notice that Jesus doesn't say that you will become a container of water. He doesn't say that you'll be a receptacle of water, but no, he goes even further. He says that you will be rivers of water. That means that if we have the Holy Spirit living in our lives, and that's true for every single genuine follower of Jesus, that he will flow out from us, will flow rivers of living water. For those of us in this room who are genuine followers of Jesus, This is my prayer for us. This is my prayer for me. Holy Spirit, would you make me more thirsty for you? Holy Spirit, would you take away the desires of my heart to fulfill those temporary things and would I desire to thirst for more of Jesus? And that as I do, that you would remove the desire for the created things of this world. And friend, that as a result of thirsting for more of Jesus, I will in turn dive deeper into his word. And as I dive deeper into God's word, my life is transformed and I no longer look like the world, but I look more and more like Jesus. And then that is transformed by the fact that the rivers of living water flow out from me and they flow into my family. They flow into my school. They flow into my workplace. That I can't contain what Jesus has done in my life, but that he just flows out through my life. It's through my words. It's through my actions. It's through everything that I do. People look at me and they say, what is different about you? And I would say, it's not me, but it's Jesus who lives inside of me. For those here today that have never experienced that true peace, 
Maybe you've been searching your entire life. You've been working, you've been straining, you've been striving, you've been doing all that you can to find that final peace, that final satisfaction in your life. My prayer is that today, if you haven't, that you would turn to Jesus who says, come to me. Not come to church, not come to religion, not do a bunch of good works, but come to me and I will provide rivers of living water and he will sustain your hearts in ways that nothing else in this world can. Would you pray with me? Dearly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the promise of eternal life that is ours, not because of anything that we do for you, not because of our lives, but because of the work of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross on our behalf. Lord, forgive us for the times that we feel that we are worthy of your love and that we forget, apart from the grace of your son, Jesus, we have no purpose, we have no meaning. But because of Jesus, we have life and we have life to the fullest. I pray that our lives would be transformed and that this river of living water would flow throughout us, Lord, that other people beginning in our homes going to our workplace, going to our friends, that they would notice something different about us because we have tasted and we have seen that you are enough. Lord, if there is someone here today that has never trusted you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that today they would humble themselves before you. They would admit their need. They would admit their guilt, that they are undeserving of forgiveness that they would find a Savior who is willing, ready, and longing to forgive them, to fill them up, and to give them eternal life. Holy Spirit, would you do a work in our lives that only you can do. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.